0: Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. In the last episode, I discussed the history of the conflict between science and Christianity with Derek Peterson. And in this episode, I aim to continue that conversation from a more normative angle with my good friend Brad Belchner. Well, like many Christian intellectuals in our day, my my bookshelves are are packed with volumes after volumes on how to interpret uh, Genesis 1 to 11. Volumes that debate various scientific theories of astronomical, geological, and biological origins and, and volumes that try to get at these questions philosophically and even ethically. But for all the voices out there on this topic, and and there are many good ones, my my own favorite commentator on these questions is with me today. Uh, (laughs) Bradley and I have discussed these issues for several years. And over those years, I have consistently found his wisdom about both the exegetical and scientific. Scientific questions to be without par. And if that were not enough, uh, Brad uh, also brings a degree of theological and philosophical awareness that is unusual in these debates and is often bracketed out of the exegetical and scientific conversations in ways that are detrimental to both. In short, Bradley is an unusually reliable guide in my judgment, and it is my intention that this be the first of many conversations that I hope to have with him over the exegetical and scientific angles on these questions. Bradley, thanks for joining us.
1: Oh, um, thanks. And that's flattering. Thank you.
0: <laughs> oh, my my, my pleasure. <laughs> if you if you would, for our listeners, why don't you uh, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself and your own story relative to these issues. You know, sort of where did you start out on the issues of, uh, you know, the science and scripture, and uh, what trouble have you gotten in yourself? Get, gotten yourself into these
1: days. <laughs> well, uh, I was raised by godly and wise parents, and uh, I was raised Young Earther, and I it was not actually a a small thing for me, being a young Earther, I was really, really into it. It was a, a significant side hobby of mine growing up. I mean, if you look at my uh, old Christmas wish lists from, you know, when I'm ten years old or fourteen years old or whatever, it's all young Earther materials. And well, not all, but it, it, they're definitely on the lists. <laughs> and I didn't really see significant reasons to challenge that position. Until after college, I got a job uh, selling shares in oil wells as investments and in that process I when I am doing work, I like to research the heck out of whatever i'm doing and I got to uh, tour oil fields the oil fields I was selling, and meet with petroleum geologists and learn you know how they drill for this oil, how they find it, and how petroleum geology basically works as a discipline, and I was shocked and disturbed to find that uh, they use old earth narratives and old earth principles to successfully predict, more or less, where oil deposits are. It's, It's not just random drilling, they're actually using specific theories about where ancient oceans were and where ancient deserts were and things like this, very specific old earth narratives to find the money and it works. And this was, this set me off on find the money they do. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I I started researching it then uh, really solidly part-time research into young earth versus old earth questions scientifically and philosophically and exegetically for, uh, few years after that, um, I'm still researching it in fact, it's not a settled thing for me, but I am settled enough now to, uh, to comfortably affirm uh, that the world is old and not young, and, and yet I really, really do not think that most average, typical Evangelical Christians out there should Hold that opinion. Um, Most of the time when I meet Old Earthers, they're Old Earthers for what I consider to be all the wrong reasons. They're Mm -hmm. Old Earthers because they uh, are wanting to defer to whatever science is popular at the time, and they're wanting to uh, not really engage with biblical exegesis in a serious way or uh they're they're willing to say i don't want to trust the wise godly christians in my life and in my recent history and in our nation's recent history instead i want to trust these godless people because uh they're the scientists they're the priests of our day this is i'm not everyone's like that of course but we all know the kind of person that i'm talking about and right if that's someone's reason for being an old Earther, then that's abominable. And and then I look at young Earthers and most of the, the reasons that young Earthers believe what they believe are good reasons and good motivations. They are wanting to defer to the wise godly leaders in their life. They're wanting to uh, take the Bible seriously and uh, they are not wanting to re- in most cases reject science or think that science is ridiculous they are as far as they're going with it wanting to say well yeah it's science is trustworthy and the bible is trustworthy and they work together and most people don't go much farther than that and that's perfectly fine and that's why the position is perfectly fine but when you do go farther into it when you actually do say okay well what do, does this really jive like does this does the, do these younger theories really work and reflect accurately what's going on here and what we see in natural revelation, I don't think it does. So if someone's an old earther because they're taking the Bible seriously and they're taking natural revelation seriously, then I respect that. Right. And if someone's a young earther because they're taking both seriously, I respect that. Um, and you know where I fall personally. My main concern is that I, I want people to take Genesis Uh, with the utmost seriousness. I don't want people to compromise even an inch on biblical authority and exegesis. And I also don't want people to compromise on natural revelation and the the observations of nature. I don't want them to compromise that even one inch either. So that's what I really want people to take away from the conversations that we're going to have here, this conversation today particularly. I'm not here to convince Young Earthers to become old earthers, even though that is my personal position i I want people to think about scripture seriously and think about natural revelation seriously
0: right that 's very helpful and uh, just for our listeners that 's one thing that i that I hope you and I will be able to do in the future is have more more conversations where we look at the text really really carefully and sort of think through how, you know what uh, are, are there tools we can use to uh, that are that are incredibly sensitive to the details of the text and uh, uh, and even to the uh, uh, e- even to its historicity. That nevertheless perhaps lead us in directions that we haven't we haven't traditionally gone. Um, and I think, but so I, I really appreciate that. I really appreciate this. Um, uh, yeah, coming to a position like that where we're not just saying you know we don't have the narrative of sort of get what the program guys oh these you know dumb young earth people right. who you know we're sort of primitive, you know that kind of thing. I think that's that's ridiculous and, and 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 is disrespectful in a way to a lot of our own to a lot of our own. You know, as you put it, godly leaders, which I think is a another emphasis that's often lost in this.
1: Um, well, yeah, most people are not researching these matters personally. Most people are taking someone's word for it. And right. If you're going to take someone's away. word for it, take the godly people's word for it. That makes sense. That's a that's the wise thing to do. <laughs> here. Um,
0: there's a lot of debate about how to interpret the first 11 chapters of Genesis as a source of theology and history and natural philosophy or or science and your judgment, you know, as you've worked through these things, what are some of the basic pitfalls that people fall into on that particular, in that particular direction?
1: The way I see it, there's, there are ditches on both sides of the road here. Uh, The ditch on one side of the road is say, Well, this text is some weird form of poetry or liturgical myth that has absolutely no implications for natural history or human history. And therefore, I am allowed to believe whatever is popular at the moment in mainstream science. And I'm told that if you join that club, then you get a cool little laminated get out of Genesis free card. And (laughs) the, the other side of the road, the ditch on the other side is to say, not consciously, but to to effectively end up saying, this text is answering all of the questions I care about as a 21st century Christian embroiled in scandal over creation versus evolution. And it's speaking to me in a way that I can straightforwardly understand and interpret, reading it like I would read any other text, meaning that I use the tools and assumptions and literary conventions that happen to be culturally close at hand to me. And that, arguably I'd say is what the, the Ken Hams of the world out there are doing. And both of these ditches, both of these mistakes are so wrong. Genesis is the oldest and most culturally foreign part of the Bible for us today. The, and the subject matter, even aside from the fact that this is just a really old and really in, uh, ancient and foreign and Hebrew text, the subject matter is dealing with something that's utterly unique. There's, there's it's creation, it's a, it's a genre unto itself necessarily, um, even if it's uh, very similar to many other genres or some other genres. You can't just write off Genesis and ignore it as weird poetry, but you also can't pretend that it's perfectly transparent to a 21st century smartphone user either. Um, Genesis I think we can say Genesis was written for the benefit of all Christians throughout time but in a more direct sense it was written and prepared for ancient Hebrews it's written in their language communicating within their culture using their literary conventions not ours and therefore cultural context matters hugely
0: how does original audience and authorial intent come into play because as you well know there's a lot of debate about these categories and some insistence that they're distinctively modern you know, so, you know, what do you think about this notion that, you know, well, well, you know, you're saying that we need to understand the mind of the ancient Hebrews, but we can't understand the mind of the ancient Hebrews. You know, all we have is sort of the ruins left behind. Everybody's kind of projecting into these sources. Um, right. What do you, you know, how would you, how do you think we should navigate that, that particular angle? Like, in other words, how can, how can we recover the mind of the ancient Hebrews? How, you know, what method do we use to do that?
1: Well, starting with the first thing you said there, the question of whether, Discussing the original audience and authorial intent, whether that's a modern thing to be doing. That is Certainly not a modern perspective. That's that is the way that texts Are interpreted by humans. This is how not just text. This is how communication works between humans Timelessly, that's always how we need to interpret what someone is saying and what or what they said or wrote down and It is true that We may have formalized and emphasized the terms uh, authorial intent or original audience in modern times, but that's really just formalizing something that we already know that we ought to be doing intuitively. Like so many principles and ethics out there, it's really just uh, carefully and self-consciously writing down what we already know to be true. Uh, We need to be thinking, what did this mean for the person writing it? And what did this mean for the people who were listening to it and reading it initially? And we got to get into their shoes. It's, it is to a certain extent going to be uh, less accessible, uh, which by the way, I don't think that compromises the doctrine of scriptural perspicuity. Uh, The doctrine that scripture is intelligible to us or perspicuity that, that it's uh, that it's accessible to us. That does not mean that every single verse and every single uh, thing in Scripture is going to be equally well understood by us. Um, it means that we, we have everything that we need in Scripture, and everything that we need is clear enough. Uh, there may be verses in, in Scripture. There probably are verses in Scripture, passages in Scripture that we will never fully understand because we do not have the tools necessary. I mean, there, there are actually, for example, individual words in the Hebrew language where, like, no one really knows what that word means. It's the only time it shows up in the Old Testament. And, right. You know, it's just like, we'll just totally make an educated guess as to what that word even means.
0: Yeah, I want to say with animals, for instance, this is often sort of guesswork. Uh, yeah. It's sort of like, because that, you know, <laughs> do we know what they <laughs>
1: <right>? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it turns out they didn't pass down some zoological textbook to us written in hebrew either right I don't really know. Right. <laughs> uh, but that's fine that's <clears throat> and right. so genesis there there's going to be a sense in which we can get what we need to get out of genesis not that it's a thing for us to be extracting meaning from not in a, in a crude way but we can understand genesis well enough we can and we can get into their minds and into their culture well enough probably not uh in a perfect and thorough manner. there might be parts of Genesis that are always a bit odd or confusing to us, but we can understand it well enough. And it's really, really important to get a cultural understanding, a similar cultural understanding to them to read this text for them. Um, For example, when when we, as modern readers, read uh, the curse on the serpent after the fall, God says, okay, now uh, now you shall eat dust and crawl on your belly. Um, we interpret that usually to mean, oh, well, now he doesn't have legs anymore. Like, man, he lost his legs. <laughs> right. That is not what the text says, actually. It says he's gonna you know, eat dust. And uh, it's a kind of weird phrase to use if you were talking about someone losing legs. And then after more archaeological research uh, into Egyptian sources, for example, uh, it turns out that when you tell a snake to eat dust, then that's a way, or to crawl in his belly also. Those are ways of telling a snake to submit or to adopt a non-threatening pose. Uh, Like you imagine like on Pharaoh's hat, you know, like you have the cobras rearing up like that. Right. Aggressive snake is up. And when you tell the snake, like, like simmer down, get down, you're like, then it's, it's eating dust and it's crawling on its belly. It's like, okay, now, submit, don't be threatening anymore. It's this, um, a basic thing that you would tell to a snake in ancient Near Eastern culture to like, get out of the way, don't be a bother here. And <clears throat> this was a common trope at the time. This is something that we wouldn't know straightforwardly just today reading the text, but if we take time to get into their culture, we can understand it. And likewise, we could think, what would someone think about some of our uh, tropes today or our phrases we use today? Like, if you're reading a novel where suddenly the bad guy says, eat lead, and then the next page, the guy's dead, and we're like, oh, my gosh, clearly it was lead poisoning. You know, like 3,000 years in the future, they're like, oh, (laughs) lead poisoning was a common thing back then. We're like, well, no, no, this eat lead means, like, he shot him up. You know, this is, you have to get into our understand this though <laughs> right there's, there's a lot of things like that in genesis right
0: and I, and i think uh, uh, talking about the serpent is a is an interesting uh, example because uh, i'm thinking of of michael heiser here he has an interesting discussion of the the just the use of the, the the image of the serpent and one of the things he tries to do by and again it goes back to kind of authorial intent is he sort of shows that the the precise word, the Hebrew word used for serpent, had sort of two or three resonances in the Hebrew language and in the yeah. Mediterranean I mean, context. Shiny
1: thing, serpent thing.
0: Yeah, and it's and it's doing kind of double, triple duty. And so what he's trying to kind of show there is is that the the emphasis here is not so much on was this a talking snake or not? It's not that it couldn't be. It's not that, you know, a a demon or whatever couldn't have, or Satan couldn't have inhabited a a quite a a literal animal. But what he's trying to show is is that within the ancient Near Eastern context, that's not necessarily for them the most immediate takeaway that there's a a kind of, and this is common in ancient texts in general, because especially if you're carving something in stone, every word you use and every image you use, and part of the, I think the confusion about how we interpret Genesis is perhaps uh, comes from a, a, a sort of projecting upon the ancient audience our relationship to texts. And one of the things we miss perhaps is that uh, ancient readers of texts, especially sort of stone-inscribed texts, words are so important and are often doing double, triple duty. And there's, there's metaphorical, there's, there's all sorts of resonances going on, even in historical narrative, even when we're trying to say, we're trying to describe an event. Uh, something that actually happened in history. We're uh, nevertheless doing something that's uh, doing a little bit more than, than our writing does partially because writing is cheap for us. It's not that, you know, we can, we can explain ourselves endlessly because we have emails and paper isn't, (laughs) you know, and so it's not, it doesn't have quite as uh, our writing practices, our storytelling practices are a bit different. One of the things you mentioned that I think is so interesting is that this is one of the most culturally foreign portions of scripture to us. Um, And one of the things that's so exciting about, you know, kind of all these archeological discoveries that have been going on for the last 150 years is that it's helping us kind of recover some of the, the cultural resonances that a lot of these terms have in a way that has not always been available to the church. Um, And the more we discover, in fact, the more we're actually able to read the text. Well, in fact, there's a, And there's a parallel debate that I find personally interesting just in the interpretation of just ancient myths in general. And that is sort of how did people, uh, you know, why did people come up with these myths and what were they doing with them? And it's kind of interesting to think that like all of these, all of these scholarly disputes, uh, you know, there's various schools of sort of what, what duty or myth, what duty are these various mythologies playing? And even there, what's interesting is I think we're, In some ways, perhaps only beginning to be able to read them well, as we sort of understand the actual lived worlds of these various peoples in more fine grained ways, we have a sense of like, what are they doing in these literary productions in a way that uh, easily becomes a victim of mere projection in Mm -hmm. previous interpretation and we can reduce them to mere psychology or mere whatever uh but one wonders like is that is that all there is to say here and there's 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 interesting suggestions out there and it's a it's a burgeoning field but i think it's a similar thing that we need to be even though i'm not i'm not uh saying genesis is myth it's not it's a it's meant to be a a, uh talking about real events uh but nevertheless there's a parallel movement it seems to me going on which is just how do we uh, in some ways, you know I wonder, are we uh we, th- 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 as you said earlier um we we 've always in a sense, given the the perspicuity of scripture in its essentials we 've always been able to read the text well um you right. know because that's always been available um and yet there's another sense, maybe another layer if we could talk that way, where maybe it's worth saying that we're also just learning to read the text in uh, or or there's, there's also aspects of the text that we're only now learning to mine, in a, in an interesting way, given given sort of new sources of knowledge, which doesn't. I don't think it, it, it negate previous readings. It's not a, it's not to be tension with previous readings or is at least not essentially so, but is really meant to fill out our reading of scripture and its various resonances and its depths, its layers. In other words, I don't think it's something evangelicals need to be afraid of, um, right. except in as much as we impose that structure in as much as we impose a sort of like, you know, uh, these things mean the other things can't be true, which is what a lot of modern liberal scholarship does. But um,
1: well, just because we have um, more ancient Eastern, Eastern cultural resources to compare Genesis to, that doesn't mean oh, Genesis is uh, copying these other people. And right. It doesn't. It, it doesn't give us um, that kind of hardcore uh, deterministic way of interpreting Genesis. It it rather is helpful. To help us see the the shape of how folks in that region and history were thinking about these sorts of areas and these sorts of questions, it's so it's uh, it's a much looser relationship than uh, some more liberal folks might draw between the ancient Near Eastern resources and Genesis.
0: Right, and in fact, I think a lot of what a lot of scholars, even non evangelical scholars, I think, would point out is is that. Even where there are those parallels, very often what Genesis is doing is quite deliberately subversive of typical right. ancient Near Eastern patterns. And so it's not just a sort of borrowing and copying. It's uh, very often it's telling the same commonly remembered, you know, everybody everybody remembers a historical flood account, but they don't say the same things about it. And Genesis very often is sort of correcting <laughs> in some yeah. sense. Uh, well, and
1: and. It's also helpful to think about anthropology here more broadly, not even just ancient Near Eastern culture, which is obviously going to be the most helpful for understanding Right. Neural moods and attitudes and, and images and thought patterns of ancient Israelites and Hebrews, but to just get outside of our own uh, weird modern white American culture and to think about what other, how other cultures really did think about the world and their stories and and so on. For example, um, so one of my side interests is uh, Eskimo and Inuit anthropology, which are, those are two different groups of people, by the way, Eskimo and Inuit. And uh, it's, there's a, a story, there's so many fun stories about um, modern anthropologists in like the, you know, early 1900s, like year 1900, 1910, that kind of thing. Going and meeting these Stone Age tribes for the first time and then missionaries coming in and converting them to Christianity and seeing how they read scripture and how they accept Christianity and how they understand modern technology is really weird and cool. Uh, For example, uh, one of the, in this uh, tribe near the Mackenzie River, uh, in 1910, there's this missionary who comes, uh, Reverend Whitaker, and he gives them this alphabet for their language. Uh, and it's kind of not—that's not such a great alphabet for them. Uh, he made the alphabet when he didn't understand their language as well as he did later. But the Eskimos—they really adopted it and it took off in a major way. And they're writing letters to all their friends with it. They—they they really like to spread that kind of thing, actually, and. Then a different anthropologist, a Harvard guy comes <clears throat> a few years later, and he is like, oh man, I have a much better alphabet. This will be, you'll love this one, guys. It's way more phonetic for the kind of sounds in this language. And they did love it, and uh, they were starting, just starting to adopt that new language, or not that new language, the new alphabet for their language. And then one day, you know, they're sitting around the fire having conversation, and one of the one of the Eskimo dudes, he's moralizing me, like, it is, it is good for us to be thankful to God for not only giving us, you know, the Bible and salvation, but also for teaching us about all these things, like for giving us the alphabet. And, and the anthropologist's like, yeah, cool, but what do you mean, like, God giving you the alphabet? And they're like, ah, well, Jesus taught to the white man about the alphabet. And... What? he's like? Oh, there was this sermon one time. He he preached the missionary Reverend Whitaker. He preached about how we have to be thankful to God for all things because God gives us all things. And I mean, that means God gave the alphabet. And Jesus is God, so Jesus gave Whitaker the alphabet. And <laughs> <laughs> and then he's like, um, I think you're misinterpreting what he meant by that. First of all, and secondly. <clears throat> Uh, and they 're like, "Well, Mr. Whitaker's an honest man. He would not lie to us about where he got the alphabet. And like, <laughs> calling into question his honesty here and <laughs> and, uh, and then he's, finally he's like, well i don 't know where whatever, wherever Whitaker got his alphabet, I had definitely made this one that you' all are using now." and they 're like, "Ooh, okay." And then they stopped using his alphabet after that completely and reverted to the old alphabet that came from Jesus. <laughs> and, <laughs> <laughs> it's, there's tons of weird, cool stories like that where, I mean, the, they, Eskimos typically, when they adopt Christianity, they adopt it in a syncretistic fashion where they're, it's not that weird to them. It's, they don't think I need to reject all my old beliefs necessarily. They're like, cool, new things to add to my beliefs. Right. And, and right away, after they become Christians, they start to have special private revelations all the time. And about, and oh, now my son is the reincarnate Jesus Christ. Oh, oops, it's a daughter. Well, it's the next son. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. The missionaries like are freaking out about this. Like, <laughs> oh, you cannot do this. And so then all that means is they just learn not to tell the missionaries about their special private revelations. You know, <laughs> about it when, the, when he's out of the, you know, the room. <laughs> missionary, missionary problems. Right. Uh. But this, yeah, these, I, I bring it up to illustrate these kinds of cultures that are so very different from ours, they, they just think about these questions and they make assumptions that we would not dream of making. I mean, uh, <clears throat> we think of like, how did Indians get corn? And we think, well, uh, they selected this piece of, you know, grass and they made the seeds bigger over centuries and that's where corn comes from. And they're assuming like, well, some ancient demigod hero dude gave us corn and passed it down to us. and I mean, I'm not saying these are equally true stories. I do think the Indians naturally selected the corn and made it bigger and all this. But the there do seem to be some uh, default shared assumptions and commonalities that you can see across cultures, even worldwide. Some, some folks as different as Eskimos and Israelites. So I'm not arguing right. Eskimo anthropology gives you important, very direct insights for how to read Genesis. But I'm saying let 's get out of our bubbles here this there are some possibly some very weird stuff going on and, and weird to us and how they would be thinking about these sorts of questions
0: right well, and it 's a question of just this it, it is to these people that sh- it, it is to people living in a world that's more like that yes. to which scripture is written, and that's relevant you know it doesn 't mean that we yeah it doesn't mean that it condones things that we would you know would say are irrational or something like that no no, and i 'm not it, saying that
1: Genesis is uh, full of lies and you know You're right but the, but the idea no.
0: but the idea is that it's communicating to 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 get it to to really get how it's written to really get how, how it's making its appeals we really do need to step outside of our own right. mental framework and it's, and that's a that takes a it takes a lot of imagination to do that well you know it takes right. it takes a lot of it's, it's a big act of will for us to do that
1: uh but, but we got to remember it's like these are the people that god is talking to God needs right. to them in a way that they're going to get it.
0: Right. And so let's, let's talk about that a little more. One of the questions I have is uh, where's a place or two, you know, where we see some, some combination of, of kind of clearly literary devices that nevertheless are interpreting what we would say is a real historical occurrence where you see a kind of blend of what we would call history with nevertheless some literary convention as well, where both of those together, you know, sort of are united. What would be an example right. of that in your judgment?
1: Uh, to me, the, the genealogies are a good example. So, um, pressing fast forward a bit, a uh, more obvious example. In Matthew 1, the genealogy of Jesus there, from Abraham to Jesus, we know for sure that it's edited to remove some generations. Right. Based on other genealogies in scripture, we know like, okay, so there's some names missing here because he wants it to add up to his 14 thing that he's doing, 14 plus 14 and so on. Um, Yeah. He he has edited the genealogy to make a literary point. And this is not a controversial thing. This is, it's not controversial back then. It's a little weird to us today, but everyone knows, everyone who's read Matthew 1 closely knows, okay, this is what's going on here and that's okay. Uh, They are reading a genealogy expecting different things than we do when we read a genealogy. We're looking for like Ancestry.com, like <clears throat> how right, to go back and get exactly what I want here. And ah, we're like really frustrated. Like, ah, I can't fill in that one generation in Ancestry.com. Um, they are not doing the same thing there. They're concerned about their ancestry. And in different places, they're concerned about it in different ways. But in, in Genesis 5, for example, the Genesis 5 is fascinating to me. Because all the numbers there are so laden with symbolic meaning, uh, Genesis five is doing something uh, similar, literally in its genealogies. Not uh, exactly the same as Matthew one. Uh, in fact, it, the numbers of the, the lifespans in Genesis five seem to correlate to the synodic orbit of planets, which is really cool. Um, I started looking into this because of the work by a guy named Bardouin, French guy in Vietnam in the 1970s. He's got some articles in French on this. And he points out that um, that these numbers match. Uh, for example, the synodic orbit of Mercury is 116 days and Venus is 584 days. Synodic orbit means uh, when the planet orbits and comes to the same spot, in the Earth's night sky. So it's an Earth-bound perspective on the orbit of a planet. And we know that the Babylonians and Egyptians knew the synodic orbit orbits of the five visible planets, and they measured them accurately, and the same, roughly. Um, uh, there's a one-day discrepancy with the synodic orbit of Mars, because it's pretty close to two numbers. Um, and it's reasonable to expect that Israelite scribes and scholars would also know the synodic orbits of planets. And sure enough, they, they actually stand out in the text when you're looking for these sorts of numbers. For example, uh, the lifespan of Jared is 962 years and 962 is the sum of the synodic orbits of Venus and Saturn and Enoch is 365 days. That's obvious even to modern readers. That's okay. Right. Yeah, that's a year. Um, Methuselah plus Kenan, their lifespans sum to 1,879. And that's the sum of the orbits of Mercury and Venus and Mars and Jupiter. And, And so on. Lamech, so Lamech, his lifespan is 777, which that by itself is just interesting and symbolic without even right. talking about planets. Uh, especially when you compare it against the previous chapter uh, where you have the, the bad Lamech who's descended from Cain. Uh, he talks about how uh, if a boy hit me and I killed him um, and if Cain is avenged sevenfold, then I'll be avenged 77 fold. So there's already this thing going on with Lamech and sevens. And now the good Lamech is 777. And it turns out that that's also the sum of Jupiter plus Saturn uh, which is interesting and it, and actually there's if you look at the different numbers in uh, in that chapter, not just the total lifespans but the the two first numbers that sum up, you can actually take a combination of those different numbers and there, there's actually three different ways in that chapter to add up seven hundred and seventy seven which is Some of these things, I'm not sure if they're coincidences. Some can't possibly be coincidences. There's definitely something going on here with astronomy. Um, One thing that I've noticed, I'm not sure anyone else has ever noticed this, or at least I've not seen anyone write about this before. Um, The sum of all five planets, uh, it sums to, oh, what's the number? I have it in my notes here sums to 2,257, which is uh, according to the chronology uh, that I'm working with here, uh, which is a reconstruction of the Septuagint numbers primarily, um, that is the year that Noah's flood ended. So once all the planets are complete, symbolically speaking, like the sum of all the planets, that's when Noah gets off the ark. It's like new creation... The new planet cycle here, symbolically speaking, I don't think that's a coincidence. So there's, there's interesting things like that going on in the genealogies.
0: Right. And there's even that verse at the end of, of Genesis 9, isn't there, that uh, 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 sort of this cosmic reference, right? Uh, 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 seed, time, and harvest, uh, right. et, cetera, et cetera, et cetera, will continue. You know, yeah. uh, you sort of, yeah, get a whole, yeah, that's interesting.
1: And this is related to the, uh, the censuses in the book of Numbers also. We've at like how many people are in this tribe and how many are in this tribe and how many, totals and stuff. That also has to do with a lot of arithmetic related to this kind of astronomy we're talking about, which puts a whole new spin on God promising Abraham that his descendants would be like the stars of heaven. Um, and my point here is not that, oh, these numbers are... Symbolic and literary; therefore, you know, people could never have lived for nine hundred years, and that's nonsense. I'm not right. That's not where I'm going with this. Um, that's not my point. My point is that there's more going on in the text than modern readers like us might initially expect. We read it and we think, "Cool, Methuselah was an old dude." We're like, no, this actually is is telling you something literarily and just as uh, just as if I can say to you, two hundred fifty-six. 512, 1,024. I mean, being a computer literate person, you you might be thinking like, okay, you're talking about RAM and gigabytes and stuff now. We're talking about base two. You know, that's, these numbers pop out to us. You know, oh yeah, of course, 256 and 1,024. So also numbers that pop out to them are things like, oh, you know, 730. And, you know, of course, 378. (laughs) Right. Because they're astronomically significant. Uh, Right. There's We really we have to be more careful and more attentive to reading the text the way they would have these texts that they're meditating upon and reading over and over and over.
0: Right. Uh, There's a parallel thing, I think in the, in the flood account. And it just, and again, it just goes to show that there's kind of funky numerology going on in the text, which of course is, all through Scripture, and Scripture ends this way. I mean, Revelation is full of numerology, and one, one right, yeah. but one interesting thing in the in the flood account is that it seems as though the, uh, the 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 author of the flood account is all of a sudden super interested in what time it is. Uh, You know, so much of, uh, you know, and this isn't true in most of the Pentateuch, you know, you don't have like on the 17th day of the seventh month, Abraham left Ur of the Caldee, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't happen. But in the flood account, all of a sudden dates, very specific month and days start to matter. And a lot of commentators are sort of like, what's, you know, what's going on? Here, why all of a sudden do we? Why all of a sudden do we start talking about you know exactly what day it is for when he sends this dove out and that dove out and that sort of thing? And one one view of this is that it's a, it's there's a literary device going on that if we actually take a certain particular calendar and count, compute what day it is, uh, that, as it turns out, key events are sort of on a on a Sunday and on a Wednesday, and it parallels the kind of emphasis in the, in the in the storytelling there that is that this is the the disintegration and then the disintegration of God's creation in Genesis one, and then the recreation in Genesis nine. And so one of the things that people sort of show is, is that if you can actually correlate these to days of the week, that there's significant sort of parallels going on. It's significant that this happens on a Wednesday, that this happens on a Sunday re- hmm. relative to the creation week. And so there's System. a, again, not to say that the, uh, you know, not to say that, you know, these things couldn't be in some way literal, it's not that, it's not that, that, it, it, not that it prejudges the question, but it, what it does is introduces a layer of meaning that might just be literary, that might be talking about a real historical event. You know, in other words, we don't need to say this isn't history, but doing so in a way that is using literary convention and, and, and meaning to sort of communicate significance.
1: And or the emphasis, came. the emphasis of what's going on might be different than the emphasis that we're placing. Or
0: right, yeah, that's
1: Thinking ourselves that we should have a certain takeaway when actually it's supposed to be a different one.
0: Yeah, I remember. I remember a preacher, in fact, uh, preaching on Genesis and you know, seventeenth day of the seventh month or whatever Genesis says, and he was like, "Look, you know, look how deep, what detailed history this is." And I remember thinking <laughs> to myself like. I wonder if that's actually, I wonder if all the rest of it is actually the historical details. It actually might be that this detail is the most kind of symbolic literary detail in the text precisely because (laughs) it's not, it's not typical of of history telling in most of the rest of the Pentateuch, And so it makes Mm -hmm. me think like there's a, there's a literary convention going on here.
1: Um, Just because we find a numerical pattern doesn't necessarily mean that it's a real one or that it's with original audience and, uh, riddle original author and audience would have been uh, emphasizing it's one has to be careful with such numerology also and have real right to think about why they might be there and so on There's right and that's guardrails
0: <laughs> that's why the the author you pointed to and what you're doing with that author i think is significant because you're pointing to a, a kind of a, a numeral logical register that was very common in that culture as you mm-hmm. said it's like it's common for us to think two 256 512 1024 you know they're whatever whatever those numbers are uh, 2048 excuse me <laughs> no wait i'm getting it yeah. wrong <laughs> but uh, it. You but you know it. what i'm saying like these are these are numbers that have immediate immediate significance um <laughs> right well we've We've talked a little bit about the Bible. Let's spend a few minutes before we before we we, we end here. Let's talk a little bit about the science side of these questions Just were you know in this particular session, I suppose we're sort of just sort of opening the can of worms that I'm sure we'll come back to in more detail in later conversations um mm-hmm. but you know there's a there's a lot of debate about out there about the role of of natural philosophy in interpreting the Bible um and as, as as I discussed in my, my last interview with Derek Peterson, it, it would seem that uh, the church is typically not employed that, you know, what I've often, again, called the sort of trump card approach to the Bible and science, where, you know, the data of one automatically sort of trumps the data of another. Uh, rather, God's two books have always, by the church, uh, been put in dialogue, the Bible sometimes making us cautious about the conclusions of some natural philosophers or natural philosophy sometimes helping us, you know, go back to the Bible and sort of take, a, take another glance at it. Um, but in your judgment, you know, I asked you earlier, what are the dangers on both sides of the, of the, of the exegetical uh, question? But uh, even here, when we're trying to put these in conversation with one another, what are some of the dangers, do you think, on both sides there?
1: Oh well, yeah, one needs to be really careful about... Uh... Talking about the Bible in relation to, well, I don't, I don't actually don't like to use the word science um, because it's, I don't, I don't think it's a helpful term to talk about science. I right. talk about natural history or astronomy or whatever, whatever we're actually talking about. Uh, science seems to be um, a term designed to give these natural observations too much weight. Like, oh. That, that is knowledge, and there's knowledge versus the Bible. Like, uh, no, I reject this dichotomy. Um, but if we're, if we're comparing, for example, astronomy to scripture, uh, I have some flat-earther friends, personally, only three flat-earther friends, who are, who are actually legitimately convinced that the world is flat and that sphericity is a conspiracy. Um, by NASA and the New World Order and everything, and I have several more friends who are geocentrists, so they yeah, 're like, yeah the world 's round, but the <clears throat> the sun 's still going around the Earth. Um, that's a little- I must
0: say the, the audience might be a little uh, amused that you said you had only three Flat Earther friends, uh, because most <laughs> people most people might not even have one <laughs> well
1: I guess, yeah well, I, I think of them. Maybe my perspective is skewed. I tend to think there's a lot of them out there. Right. Three friends. I don't know. But <laughs> um, but they're, they believe these things for biblical reasons primarily. Uh, all of the ones I'm aware of, at least in my, my circles, do. They believe that, well, the world talks about, the, the the Bible talks about the four corners and the foundations of the earth and the earth will not be moved and so on. And it talks about the sun moving and and, and so on. And they reason from this, well, therefore the world is flat and it's not moving. Um, And that is not the common view among Christians historically. It's not unheard of in Christian history. Um, I mean, the ancient Greeks figured out the sphericity of the earth like 300 years before Christ. uh, And Greeks and Romans in the time of Jesus basically took for granted that the world's a sphere and Jews were kind of, uh, I don't know much about this subject, so I guess I shouldn't speak so confidently about what Jews at the time believed, but uh, I know there are at least some Jewish rabbis arguing about that sort of thing uh, in the Second Temple period. And when you get to the early church fathers, like folks like Augustine, by that time, there's like there's basically no flat earthers. There's a few like, uh, Severian of Gabella was a flat earther. He was a contemporary of Augustine. But pretty much you don't have any flat earthers. You have folks who are content to read scripture as uh, not teaching a flat earth. And uh, thinking about these sorts of questions today, when we have, uh, we're interested in more, more than just flat earth and geocentrism, we're also interested in the age of the earth and even the descent of biological species. Um, we need to be careful to affirm scriptural inerrancy. So scripture has to be completely accurate in all that it is seeking to affirm, whatever that means. And uh, obviously natural revelation needs to be accurate too. Um, we, we don't want to say that, um, that uh, the study of creation is inherently misleading. Like, ah, uh, you, you, uh, if you look at the rocks too closely, you'll be led astray by their their temptations. <laughs> um, some people do think that, and we've got to reject that. Um, the folks who say like, oh, uh, Satan buried the fossils to fool us. Those are a tiny minority. Most most Christians actually have intuitively sound principles for dealing with these sorts of things. We intuitively know like, well, they both got to be true and neither of them are misleading. And how do we reconcile them? Well, they must reconcile like, This is the standard position, intuitively, for Bible-believing conservative Christians. And it's a good one. Uh, But that just means when you come to apparent contradictions, you need to be very careful and very honest with yourself about uh, deferring too much to, say, your understanding of science or the theories that you've heard about science. You don't want to defer to that too much unthinkingly but you also don't want to necessarily assume that you have interpreted scripture in the only way, or in the perfect way. Maybe your interpretation of scripture is wrong. Uh, Maybe it's not teaching a flat earth. Maybe it's not teaching uh, geocentrism Um, and so on. This is a pretty vague way of responding to your question. I mean, uh, right? if you want to say anything here.
0: Oh, no, oh, no. I mean, I think you're getting at the the kind of general boundaries there. And like, I, yeah, the trick is, of course, you know, sort of uh, how we, yeah, the trick is sort of how we do that in a principled way. I think the concern, of course, you know, that, that I know you've encountered and I've encountered is sort of like, do, do we, once we do that project of, of synthesis, you know, where we say we're going to take Scripture very seriously, and we're going to take the conclusions of natural revelation very seriously, and I very much appreciate that you said that's, in a way, most Christians' kind of intuitive set of principles when dealing with this thing. The right. trick then, the trick then becomes. Uh, how do we do that in a principled way, rather than in a functionally elastic way, where we sort of just make the Bible fit or just make the natural revelation fit, you know, in either direction? Yeah. Where and the I breaks, think that, that's the hard <laughs> thing is like really coming up with a more fine grained approach to you know, uh, and in fact that that kind of leads into the next question. One of the one of the background debates to a lot of this um, is, uh, are issues in the philosophy of science. As you well know, a lot of, I think a lot of, uh, six day creationists really appreciate the, you know, uh, the philosophy of science that is presented by somebody like Thomas Kuhn, for instance, that there really isn't, uh, any kind of objective science behind a kind of social convention of sorts. And sometimes there's a yeah, an implicit philosophy that even goes something like, um, you know, I've heard some six-day creationists sometimes say, and, the, and this intuitively makes sense, but it goes something like this, you know, we're all staring at the same facts, you know, the six-day creationists right. and the non-six-day creationists, but we have different interpretations of those facts, um, and, and of course, o- on the one hand, this is this is often wrong, <laughs> in the, yeah. that is to say, in fact, people are often not staring at the same facts, you know, they they might be staring at, often the facts are are wildly different that they're looking at, especially when you get down into the weeds and that's often not, not known. Um, But the assumption there, there's another assumption there, which is that everything here is kind of resolved. If we're all staring at the same facts and it all comes to interpretation, the assumption there is that it all goes back to first principles. Then, you know, the assumption is everything's resolved by an appeal to first principles or to worldview. Um, But you know, I think one way of maybe getting behind that is to is to have this this other question, which is just what makes good natural philosophy. That is, given this confusion, what are some of the ways that you know take something like geology, for instance? What are the what are some of the ways in natural philosophy that we can test the betterness of one hypothesis over another? You know, that is to say, what makes for a good. Kind of a good scientific paradigm. When do we know we're right. looking at something that we really do have to grapple with? Because, gee, that seems to be the way reality's pointing. Um, what are a couple of, right. kind of rules that we can gesture toward in you know a few minutes here?
1: Yeah, yeah, you said a lot there. I mean, no,
0: oh, sorry, <laughs> some of that.
1: No, it's fine. Um, the so for starters, the the common appeal that well we we see the same facts, and we just have different interpretations of the facts uh, in terms of like Young Earth versus Old Earth. Like, well, you know, we're we're dealing with the same data here, we just have different interpretations and explanations and theories. That, I believe, uh, it stems from a laudable impulse. Uh, These most everyday Christians, conservative Christians, don't want to be conspiracy theorists. They don't want to poison the well of discourse Uh, And yet they know, okay, these people are out there and they're disagreeing. Um, I don't want to say that they're liars and that they don't have the observations that they claim to have. Um, We don't want to get into, you know, like NASA is telling us the world is a sphere territory. Right. To say we have good faith in our interlocutors here in a basic way. And therefore, we do see the same facts as them. And we just this is what the default Christian would say, at least, the conservative Christian in America who's a young earther. Uh, it's just that we have different interpretations for this. Uh, it's a charitable thing to say, actually, um, in, as far as it goes, in what I just described, it's a charitable thing to say. It's, and it also assumes that uh, the, the evidence maybe isn't really that detailed. Like, this is all kind of sketchy you have your sketchy interpretation and I have my sketchy interpretation and the facts are not sufficient enough to rule one way or the other against one of these perspectives. So I believe mine, which is in accordance with the Bible and you believe yours, which is in accordance with materialism and and we'll go our separate ways happily and cheerfully and honestly. Um, So it's on that view not really devolving into worldviewism or a retreat to commitment because they don't think that the evidence is that detailed to rule on it. They think we're dealing with something sketchy here. Um, but uh, when it starts to devolve into worldviewism, is when you start to get into the weeds and you start to have really problematic retreats to commitment. in. The more sophisticated young earthers who actually know what they're talking about. Uh, folks who I actually respect immensely, uh, Dr. Todd Wood, I, I still respect him and follow his work very closely. Um, Dr. Kurt Wise, um, Wood is a, as a biologist and Wise is a geologist. These young earthers, uh, they see the evidence, they see This is not just looking at the same facts and having different interpretations. Um, Our opposition has a very strong theory here um, and we disagree with them because we defer to scripture and they don't. So they, uh, Kurt Wise has a famous quote where he says, uh, even if all the evidence in the universe goes against a young earth, I'll still believe it because that's what the Bible says. And I respect him for saying that. And that is actually what he said, all the evidence in the universe, if it goes against this. I'll say. Right. I respect that. That's, uh, that takes balls to say that. <laughs> I believe that. Um, it's like somebody who uh, reads the Sermon on the Mount and is like, you know, if, <clears throat> if it, and, and thinks, well, I'm struggling with sexual temptation, so I'll castrate myself. You know, literally, I'll chop off my balls. You know, like it takes balls. <laughs> <laughs> but that is ultimately a misinterpretation. It's, it's yeah. I mean, because actually, if the real problem was, the real problem is your heart, uh, in terms of the Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, and philosophically, it'd be wrong to say if all the evidence in the universe goes against this, I'd still believe it because of scripture. I mean, it's, it's laudable that you would prioritize scripture like that if there actually was a contest, but uh, it's a false premise. There shouldn't be a competition. There shouldn't be right. um, such tension like that. There shouldn't be an, a scenario when all the evidence in the universe is going against... And he doesn't believe all the evidence in the universe. Right. He was saying a hypothetical. Um, but uh, we if we do encounter really strong scientific evidence, it ought to, in the very least, make us go back to our scriptural interpretation and say, maybe we're reading this wrong. It should not make us think maybe the Bible is wrong. It should make us think maybe we're wrong about the Bible. Right. So, when we're bringing uh, naturalistic observations and theories uh, and comparing them with words in scripture, we need to be really careful that we're being uh, faithful with the natural observations that we're making and the theories. And we need to be really careful in how we're interpreting scripture too. I mean, I'm, I've already said this, but we just have to be so careful. Um, you asked about ways to, to tell if a theory is actually strong. Uh, how do we actually tell when good science is happening versus bad science? Um, that's a whole nother can of worms to open there, uh, having to do with philosophy of science um, i mean i could I can give my favorite example if that's if you think that's yeah the, yeah, geology here yeah. Uh, Well, okay, so a scientific theory is not just not merely meant to explain uh, the observations in front of you. That's pretty easy to do, actually. There's a lot of ways to ex- just explain what's in front of you. A, a really strong theory will give you a map for extending outwards into other things you're going to meet, um, which is another way of saying it ought to be able to make predictions. Mm-hmm. Um, satisfying the evidence you have on hand is a start. It's a, an excellent start. Um, but it could be ad hoc. When you've really got something useful and compelling is when you can actually go out to something you've never met before and apply the theory and it works. Um, but uh, Well, petroleum geology is my favorite example here. I'm biased because this is my introduction to a lot of these questions and I sold oil wells and everything. But Beneath your feet right now, there are just miles of sedimentary rocks and with so many unique layers. You have like, here's your limestone layer and then you'll have some sandstone from a desert and then you'll have some muddy shale and then you'll have sandstone again and then some limestone again, like different layers that are similar, but they're repeating at different times. And you you have this immense narrative, there's all this history beneath your feet of deserts and shallow oceans and deserts again and forests and so on. And having a better understanding uh, of the narrative beneath your feet, the historical narrative beneath your feet is how we find oil today. This is how oil companies make the big bucks uh, is with old earth narratives, Um, they worked. The way that uh, would it be too in depth if I go into no. oil forms or yeah yeah go ahead. So I think the details here are just just the sheer complexity and the number of details here that are required is is compelling. So have an oil deposit, a, a good economical oil deposit that you could drill in and get some oil. Um, it's not like there's. A lake of oil down there somewhere like like some cave that filled up with oil whatever that's not really it usually it's uh some porous rock like sandstone um where you can just like pour water on the sandstone and it kind of soaks it up or limestone with a bunch of cracks in it something like that some porous rock will have soaked up a lot of oil but how it got there is so complex it's number one First step, you need to have something like algae that dies and sinks down to a level in the ocean where there's not enough oxygen for it to decompose like normal. So it's not, it's not going to turn into compost. It's going to uh, do a different thing because there's not enough oxygen. So you have to have an ocean of the right depth, like 200 to 1,000 meters, and it's got to ideally be warm and need it to settle there. Uh, hence, the shallow ocean, and you need it to then be pushed down and subducted and go deeper in the earth, like with sediments building on top or being pushed under or whatever and you need it to go down deep enough so that it cooks but doesn't and it needs to cook just right it can 't cook too little, otherwise it and basically turns into gas uh, uh, like compost basically. And it can't cook too much, or it burns. Like uh, if you've heard of the uh, Canada oil sands, the tar sands, that stuff is a bit overcooked. That's why it's not so good. Um, although it's still salvageable, it's just barely. It's like a barely burned cake up there in the Canada oil sands, tar sands. And within, so that's that's not that's we're only like halfway there. So it gets cooked at the proper uh, pressure and temperature, uh, like this aging wine. And you can tell when it happens quickly or slowly, like a wine. And then it has to go back up. It has to have plenty of time to uh, b- bubble up due to pressure, uh, squeezing between cracks and through porous rocks. It has to go up and up and up to closer to the surface, uh, still quite deep usually, but it has to go upwards and concentrate in some porous rock blocked by an impermeable, impermeable barrier. So like you'll have these salt domes uh, where an ancient ocean evaporated like the a, like a, uh, Salt Lake City in Utah, like that lake farther in the future, like it's totally evaporated. It's just salt. It's this impermeable barrier that oil can't go through anymore. So the oil stops there and starts to concentrate if there's a good rock underneath it to concentrate in like sandstone or limestone underneath it. And then it just stays there. Or, or maybe what will happen is there'll be some earthquake and, or, and a fault or the salt dome will break and then some of the oil will bubble through and go to the surface, which is why in the Middle East, you actually will have oil, it'll actually bubble up to the surface sometimes because that has happened. Mm. Um, but I digress. The point is you have to have this really specific complex chain of events to make the oil just right and concentrated enough and located underneath, like in this rock, underneath this other rock where there used to be way back then, a shallow ocean that got deeper and and so on. And if you know, uh, or if you have a rough idea of the positions of the continents uh, at a certain point in geological history, like here's where the coastline was at this point, uh, in history, and then here's when it turned into this other, it got buried and so on, then you can roughly predict where you ought to be able to find a concentration of oil. It's, uh, it's gotten much more sophisticated and advanced as time has gone on. It's, it's my favorite uh, branch of science in terms of the respect I have for it because it's in a sense dominated by the free market unlike most other branches of science. <laughs> uh, ExxonMobil actually has contributed more to the field of geology than any university. Uh, They're fantastic, they actually invented the discipline of sequence stratigraphy to try and find these oil deposits. So there's this inbuilt uh, feedback mechanism for if your theories are good or bad when you're drilling million dollar holes for oil. And they are using Old Earth narratives to predict where this oil is and it works. And they're not, it's, it's not just looking for uh, guessing based on big geological patterns. You'll have, when the drill is, is going and you have the mud going on this, um, uh, this conveyor belt, you'll have geologists uh, looking at the mud in microscopes and what they're looking for are microfossils uh, to see when they hit the sediment of a particular geological age. So like they're saying, we need Cretaceous sediment here. We need to find uh, this kind of uh, microfossil or uh, we're looking for this kind of pollen, for example. They can look at that and find fossilized pollen. And then once you hit it, you're like, oh, I know this is where it ought to be. And uh, they can do that because you have these uh, perfectly consistent worldwide layers of species in In uh, geological layers, you have, for example, in sediments older than two hundred and fifty million years, there is no pollen of any kind, pollen like or no no pollen from flowers. You do not have pollen in sediments older than that ever in any kind of mud or sand or anything worldwide. It's only after a certain place that you have. Like, how could you? Anyways, I don't want to get into too many details here. Um. All of these things, uh, the paleontology of microfossils, the radiometric dating, the uh, narrative of continents moving slowly over time, like all of these things and more work together for ExxonMobil to spend a million dollars drilling a well and finding the oil thereafter. It, this is a theory that can take you places. This is a theory that works. Um, and I'm, I'm really, want to say and emphasize again i'm not trying to convince anyone to be an old earther when i say this i'm just training an example of what i believe to be good science oh i said science right Um, um there i would encourage one not to just take my word for it uh not to just say well i i read a i listened to a podcast where a guy said that you know on mobile, found oil with evolution. So evolution must be true. So I'm not a Christian anymore. Like that's right. This is yeah. not where we're going with this. This is um, merely an example of when you have a really compelling theory, and I do want people to look at this and say, "Wow, that's compelling." Um, it's it just is objectively compelling. But uh, yeah,
0: right. So one one criteria then there is is like good science is prediction generating like that's i mean like like uh like if we have a good theory the idea is is that it can help us go look and find things that we didn't find before predict where things are going to be or what they're going to be like before we even make the observation and and so so it's not just retrospective which is where that kind of like we're all looking at the same facts and Uh, You know, we have different interpretations kind of treats it all like, uh, or scientific theories like it's a purely retrospective thing, like we're just sort of adding a layer of explanation on top of already established facts, as opposed to this thing actually causes us to find new facts, because it sends us into the world to actually uncover things that then become part of the, you know, then become part of the... the, 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 Yeah, there's a distinction
1: sometimes drawn in, in, by folks like at Answers in Genesis between historical science and forensic science, but that, uh, wait, is that the distinction they draw? Uh, I forget the exact terminology they use. Um, uh, oh, observational science versus forensic science, something like that. You, you guys know what the distinction is I'm talking about. They, they distinguish between the science that helps you go out and build a bridge versus the science that helps you, you know, reconstruct a uh, a crime scene, Uh, historical science versus this uh, active out in the world science. And uh, there might be some superficial truth to that kind of distinction, but ultimately it breaks down because the sorts of uh, methods and principles that people are using in their historical or forensic science are the same as other science and uh, especially in the field of petroleum geology, it is science that you use to go out and do something, go build your bridge, so to speak. Uh, it's, it's not a distinction that really holds up. And I think it is, again, laudable in the sense that they're trying not to be conspiracy theorists, uh, but it it doesn't work ultimately.
0: Right. Right. <laughs> well, that's, that's very helpful. Um... Uh, before we before we uh, leave for the day, and again, I'm sure we'll come back and talk about more about the Bible and talk more about science in the future, but just uh, as we're kind of closing our preliminary discussion of this, what do you think are some things that we need to be talking about that we aren't talking about when it comes to this, you know, when it comes to this topic, and you know, this is something I've asked all of my guests, but... I want to ask you in specific, what, what, what do you think needs to become more prominent in the evangelical conversation on this particular matter?
1: Um, hmm, interesting question. Um, one thing that I think uh, is important to bring to the way we think about uh, our natural observations and theories is a more careful empiricism, a more self-conscious way of using our imaginations. So the reigning paradigm for how folks do science is the a kind of uh, Cartesian Newtonian perspective where first you formulate your abstract theory and then you go out into the world and test it rigorously, which sounds nice, but actually what's far better to do, is to first immerse yourself in the source material, immerse yourself in your observations. What is uh, this animal that you're studying? What is it like in its lived life? What is it like in its context? Or you're studying the human body. What, what are these uh, cells really doing in their living context, not just in a petri dish, etc.? Immerse yourself in the observations and... After that, use your uh, imagination and intuition and reason in a disciplined manner to try and explain all that you've observed, all these observations that others have made that you've ordered and the observations you yourself have made. You first do that. Then you use your imagination and intuition and reason to, to try and explain it and come up with this theory that's going to take you places. And then thirdly, you test your your theory that you've come up with rigorously. So you don't start with your abstract theoretical reasoning and lay it over uh, as the grid through which you're interpreting the observations. You first do the observations and then allow the imagination to work and then test it rigorously. Uh, This is the the method advocated by folks like Goethe, uh, uh, sometimes pronounced (laughs) (laughs) Goethe. Right. (laughs) So Goethe was was really big on this. He, he His delicate empiricism is a model for how we ought to do all science. It's especially, especially important for biology because the more complicated the subject you're studying is, the more likely the Newtonian perspective is going to mislead you. The, the Cartesian kind of uh, start with your abstract stuff and then test it. Uh, really, when you have the Newtonian-Cartesian perspective, what you have is imagination happening. It's just not being acknowledged. You have imagination sometimes uh, inserting itself into how the things are being tested or how the observations are being made after the fact. Um, You have a lot more room for your imagination to bias you in unhelpful ways when you're not giving it its proper place. It's flipping things on its head, really. Uh, You put the uh, imagination at... At the beginning, instead of putting the imagination after the observations themselves. So, when we approach science, whether it's medicine or geology or whatever, we need to first just immerse ourselves in the real thing we're studying, the real lived thing we're studying. Secondly, apply our imaginations and reason to it. And thirdly, test what we're, the explanation rigorously. That would solve so many things. This is why, for example, in in the field of medicine, there is tons of progress and reliability in the more simple and rudimentary biological things, like uh, like setting a bone and letting a bone heal. Uh, That's relatively straightforward. Not a lot of imagination involved there, actually. But when it comes to explaining the origins of cancer and how to heal cancer, that will necessarily require such a delicate empiricism, a Goethe-style empiricism. Uh, it's no wonder that that not, has not been cracked by uh, by conventional medicine that we see today. Hmm. That is one thing that I really think we need to emphasize more, is our, our overall approach to science. We need a more Goethean method, even if we're just studying rocks. And the Newtonian-Cartesian method is uh, least likely to mislead when you're studying something simple and dead, like rocks right. or physics. But even then, it's gonna be a bit problematic and, and not as good as a more self-conscious uh, Gertian method, a delicate empiricism. Uh, but uh, we need that in the way we approach science and in the way we, and separately, secondly, to answer your question, what do we need more of in this whole conversation, this whole subject? We need to be uh, approaching scripture and Genesis, especially as uh, almost something alien that needs to mm-hmm. be uh, understood. We, we, who, especially us who have been, we've been reading our Bibles since childhood. We've oh it's, it's that sentence again. Oh, it's that sentence again. We, we've, it's comfortable to us and we don't see how strange scripture is. And we don't see how unlike other books today scripture is uh which goes back to our point about uh getting our minds into an ancient near eastern mindset um we really need to treat scripture as something that needs to be studied and not just casually read and absorbed by osmosis
0: yeah it's interesting uh your comments on the Goodian method actually remind me in the in a couple of interviews ago, I was talking to Alistair Roberts and I asked him sort of how can we become better Bible readers and what you described as sort of the goodian method of, of doing science is very similar to the way he spoke about how we should read scripture, which is you don't approach it very abstractly. The first thing to do with scripture is actually to ask it nothing but to just yeah. let it, just to sit before it. And the way you put it, I, I like that, that you kind of sit before it in an alien way and you let it just, you just listen to it. You just read it over and over again and you kind of try yeah. to hear it, hear what it's doing on its own terms and let it work on you a bit.
1: Uh, and that's where the osmosis is appropriate. You want the osmosis when you're just, just absorbing the observations. Yes, the yes. The osmosis should not just be, oh, the interpretation I jumped to in my imagination without realizing it. Right. It, I won like that's no, that's not where you need the imagination, but the imagination self-consciously later after you've really done the absorption of the observations.
0: Right. Right. Well, uh, Brad, this has been really helpful. Um, uh, uh, g- again, to our listeners, I'm sure that we'll have, we'll have Bradley Belchner back on here to fill out this picture that we're putting in faint outline today, but I'm sure we plan to come back and flesh this in various ways because there's so much that's fun to talk about, especially in Genesis 1 to 11. There's a lot that is alien to us, and there's a lot of things that we could do with just the names in Genesis 1 to 11, maybe getting deeper into these numbers and some of these these literary motifs, some of the historicity, even the archaeology. There's so much to talk about there that would be kind of fun to piece together over time, but, but for now, you have been listening to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast. That's all for today, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening.